It's wonderful to be here this morning. And I hope that each one of us realizes how wonderful it is to be here. To be with our brothers and sisters in Christ. To be able to come. There was something, Callan. <clears throat> to be able to come and to worship God. And to spend time with our brothers and sisters. And I hope this morning, as we open up God's Word, that you'll find the things that we study this morning beneficial for you. I certainly have been strengthened <clears throat> by the study, and I hope it will benefit you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 14, <clears throat> it says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Did you know that Christians are led by the Spirit? The Spirit of God is at work in the lives of each and every person who's trying to serve God. And He's near to us. Like that song we sang right before the prayer, God is near to us through the Spirit. And He leads and guides us along this life. And many of us, we've tried to live life our own way. We've tried to follow our wisdom, haven't we? We've tried to do things without God, and it doesn't always turn out very good, does it? And as I look back in my life and see the things that I've done when I didn't trust God, and I tried to do things my way, and I'm thankful for that leadership. And I hope you are too. Galatians chapter 5, verse 18 says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The old law, all it did was condemn man. And it said, you're a sinner and you deserve punishment. But as Christians, we are led by the Spirit. We are no longer under the law. And so the question you might have this morning is, how does the Spirit lead us today? How does the Spirit lead you? How does He lead me? If you go out into the world and you talk to people and ask them, how do you think the Spirit leads you? You're going to get all sorts of answers. And this is an important concept for us to think about because people's lives are affected by where they turn for leadership. I want to share with you just a few examples of, of why this is an important subject for each one of us to listen to. When I was in college, there were some missionaries who came to my door, knocked on my door and asked if I wanted to know a little bit more about God. So I said, oh yeah, definitely. And so we made an appointment, and they came back, and we discussed the scripture and went back and forth. And they tried using logic and looking into passages of scripture and turning to another book and say, you need to follow this book. I said, no. Well, they said, well, tell me how you're feeling right now. What are those feelings that you're going through? I said, well, I'm a little anxious. I'm nervous talking to you all about it. They said, that's the Holy Spirit working in your life, telling you, you need to follow this book. This other book, not the scripture, but follow this other book, and it'll lead you into the right path. They tried to manipulate me and use my feelings to turn me against the word of God. Is that the way the spirit works? I know of a woman in this area who was reading a flyer about a church here in town. And as she was reading this flyer, she was overcome with the feeling. She couldn't explain it. She didn't know what it was or where it was from, but she, that's, that feeling told her, don't throw that flyer away. And so she set it aside and began to think about it, and she said, I'm going to look at it again in a few hours. And she did, and that same feeling occurred. And she interpreted this feeling, this emotion that she had, 
as a message or divine revelation from the Spirit of God that she needed to be a part of this church. She recognizes there are things that are wrong with the things that they do, the things that they teach, the organization of the church. But she has decided that the Spirit wants her there rather than to follow the Word of God. And so she's cast aside the Word of God for this feeling. One more story. Another person I've met moved from overseas to be here in Plainview, Texas because of a dream. And they had this dream and they had this desire and they said, these desires and this dream was God speaking to me and telling me to move here. And this is where my life was supposed to be. And I haven't got to talk to this person again, but I would be curious to see what was going on if their opinion was the same today. All three examples of this show how people might have different opinions or views about the, how, how the Spirit leads. And so it's important for us to understand where does the Spirit, or where do we find the leadership of the Spirit? So I've entitled my lesson this morning simply, Led by the Spirit. The, the phrase led by the Spirit is found exactly four times in the New Testament. Twice it's talking about Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. And two other times we've already read, Romans 8 and Galatians 5. We're not going to take the time to read this chapter through, but what I want to do is highlight two specific things that this chapter is talking about so that we can all see the theme that he's discussing. In the green, you'll notice he's talking about things of the flesh. In verse 1, he says, according to the flesh. Verse 3, through the flesh, the sinful flesh. Skipping down to verse 5, living according to the flesh, to be carnally minded. Verse 10, he talks about the body, and he talks about living a life according to the flesh. So one of the things he really focuses on in in Romans chapter 8 is the flesh. And what he does is he contrasts it to living a life following the Spirit. Notice in the yellow, he talks about living a life according to the Spirit. Things of the Spirit, according to the Spirit. To be spiritually minded, not in the flesh. He talks about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. The spirit of life, the spirit is life, excuse me, through the spirit. And he goes on and on and on, contrasting walking in the spirit, living in the spirit, being led by the spirit, and walking in the flesh, following our fleshly desires. And finally, in verse 14, he says, For many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So just by looking at those things, we can see this has nothing to do with the spirit speaking to me giving me divine revelations, talking to me in dreams, or giving me directions on things to live. That's not the idea he's talking about here. He's talking about following the Spirit, being led by the Spirit to live a righteous life, to forsake the flesh. That's the idea he's promoting in Romans chapter 8. What about Galatians chapter 5, the other verse that we read this morning? Let's read verses 16 through 18. The Bible says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. It's the same idea. The flesh and the Spirit don't work together. We have to separate those and choose to walk in the Spirit. Continuing on, it says, so that you do not do the things that you wish, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the same idea is there. The things of the flesh and the things of the Spirit and the Christian must forsake those things of the flesh and walk by the Spirit. So I have a simple, just a table for, to illustrate the parallels in Romans 8 and Galatians 5. 
He talks about walking in the Spirit or, or living a life in the Spirit. In both of these verses, he talks about crucifying the flesh or not fulfilling the flesh. Why? Because it's going to lead to eternal death. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And Galatians 5, 21. Those who, will do those, who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he talks about the need for us to stop following the flesh and to be led by the Spirit. In verse 13 and verse 24, he says, Put to death the deeds of the body. In chapter 5 and verse 24, Those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. And then finally, being led by the Spirit. So the whole idea of every passage that talks about being led by the Spirit is talking about forsaking our carnal life, not living in sin, and following the Spirit to live a righteous life. That's the whole idea of every verse in the New Testament that talks about the Spirit leading the Christian. Galatians 5, verses 18 through 21, expounds on this, and he gives examples of walking in the flesh. He says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So that's what walking in the flesh looks like. And then in the next verse, he talks about what being led by the Spirit leads to. If we walk by the Spirit and are led by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such. There is no law. So I hope that as we've spent the time this morning looking at Romans chapter 8 and Galatians 5, you see that being led by the Spirit has nothing to do with the Spirit speaking directly to you and to me today. But that leaves a question that you might be curious about. Does the Spirit speak to us today? And if He does, how does He do that? And so I want to spend some time looking at some theories or some ideas about how the Spirit leads <clears throat> and look at how that they are wrong. The first one I want to look at is the Spirit does not speak through our hearts. He does not speak through our hearts. You might hear phrases like, God put it on my heart to do something. He gave me this desire. The desire in my heart is so strong, it must be from God. Someone might say, I felt the Spirit move me to do this or to do that. Or finally, these feelings have to be from God. Is that the way God works? Does He give us feelings? Does He give us feelings that tell us that what we're doing is right and wrong? Should our feelings or the things in our heart be a, a measuring stick when it comes to religious things? Or should it be something different? Let's see what the Bible says about the heart of man. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? So there's two traits mentioned here about the heart. It's deceitful above all things. There's nothing else that's more deceitful, is what the Bible says about the heart. And it's desperately wicked. <clears throat> in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 3, he says, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. 
madness or foolishness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. So this is the resume that the Bible has for the heart. Deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, and full of foolishness. That's not a very good resume, is it? Are we going to trust someone with our money who fits these three traits? If someone walked in or you go to a banker and you, you say, describe yourself and why should I do business with you? Why should I put my money in your hands? And if he said, I'm wicked, I'm deceitful, and I'm foolish, are you going to put your money in his hands? No. What about a babysitter? We love our kids, don't we? We want the best for them. And if you say, tell me about yourself to this person who wants to babysit your kids, and they tell us that, our heart, or they tell, they tell us that they're deceitful, wicked, and foolish? Are we going to trust them with our children? No. The things that are valuable to us, why would we trust someone like that? And when it comes to our soul, which is the most important thing that each of us have, why would we put the, tr- the care of our souls in our hearts? They're evil, they're wicked, and they can deceive us. Look at what Jesus said about the heart in, in Mark chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. He says, For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. We live in a society that tells us that we need to follow our hearts, don't we? It's promoted in our society over and over and over again. And when we look out into the world, what do we see? We see these kind of things behind me. A world that is full of evil. Because men have chosen to neglect the word of God and to follow what their heart desires. And sadly, many Christians have tried to mold the life of a Christian and the life or the the view of the world. And they say, well, I know I have this desire and I have this passion and this feeling that, that is not necessarily right with God's word. But God gave that to me to tell me that's okay. And that's just simply not how God works. God will never give us feelings that are contrary to his word. Verse 23 says, All these evil things come from within and defile a man. The reality is, is our heart is in the business of leading us to corruption and to leave dirty li- or live dirty lives. But God wants to cleanse us and make us whole and holy. And so if we're going to follow our hearts, these are the things it's going to lead to. And many people try to justify it by saying, God gave me these desires, or God told me it was okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he says, Let no one deceive himself. You and I can deceive ourselves and believe in all our heart that it's right, and that the way we're living is okay, despite what Scripture says. And he says, you are deceiving yourselves. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You have to recognize that we are fools compared to the wisdom of God and humble ourselves so that we can follow the wisdom of God. So there are many people who are deceived by their heart. And these are good people, honest people, sincere people who are trying to do what's right and they're deceived. I want to look at one example this morning of people who thought they were doing a good thing and who neglected God's word and show that even though they felt it felt right to them and they thought it was a good thing, it wasn't. 
In Exodus chapter 25, verse 12 through 14, God lays out his plan for the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. This was the box that held the, the stones where the two commandments or the Ten Commandments were written on. In Exodus 25, verse 12 through 14, the Bible says, You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by men. That's a pretty clear instruction, isn't it? They had, the ark had these rings. They stick the poles in and men carried that ark. That was a very clear instruction from God. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13, we see that the ark had been captured by the enemies of God, but David and the army of God had gotten it back. And so they're happy, they're excited, and they're going to take that ark back. And notice what they decide to do in verse 7. So they carried the ark of God on a new cart. That wasn't God's plan. They were trying to do a godly thing and take the ark to back, back to um, I can't remember where, but they were going to take it back for safekeeping. And so notice what happened, or notice what verse 8 says. <clears throat> then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps, on stringed instruments, tambourines, on cymbals, and with trumpets. They were excited. They were happy. They had just gotten the ark back. And they played music before God with all their might. They were trying to serve God. They were trying to take this ark back to back to where it could be safe. They were singing. They were praising God. Can you imagine the emotions that were in the hearts of these people as they sang and as they played? They were feeling really good about it. All the while, they were disobeying God, weren't they? And notice what happens in verse 9. And when they came to Chidon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and he struck him because he put his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. These people felt good. They felt right. They were honoring God. They were doing a noble thing in their own mind. But they were deceived. They weren't. And God's anger was poured out on Uzzah when the ark was about to fall on the ground because the oxen had stumbled. Uzzah was trying to do a good thing. I need to keep the ark from falling. But as soon as he touched it, God killed them. See, their feelings were misleading them. They were misguided. And just because it felt right didn't mean it was. So many people today have chosen to follow what they think is right. They feel good about it, but the reality is, is they're walking down a pathway to, to death. Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, and whoever walks wisely will be delivered reality is, if we choose to trust our hearts, we are foolish. In Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12, there's a way that seems right. It seems right. It feels right. We think we're doing the right thing. But the reality was, is it is the, it, the, but its end is the way of death. So many people are sincerely trying to do what's right, but they're sincerely wrong. Because they've chosen to neglect the, the, the word of God. So we've looked at lots and lots of passages of the heart. Why would God say all these things and then choose to use the heart as a conduit to send his messages to man today? Why would he send messages through the heart after telling us, don't trust our heart, don't follow our heart, don't believe what's in your heart, it's deceitful and wicked. It doesn't make sense, does it? 
Yet so many people try to justify the things that they're doing by telling themselves that the heart is the way to go. Jesus provides the example for us. In John chapter 12, verse 27, in John 12, verse 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. Jesus was facing his crucifixion, and everything that was brewing inside of him, what did it tell him? Get away from the cross. Do something else. This is not good for me. And he says, my soul is troubled. Those feelings were brewing inside of him. But he knew what God's word was. His will was for him to go to the cross and to die on the cross. So what did Jesus do when faced with his feelings versus the word of God? He suppressed his feelings and chose to follow the word. And that's the example for you and for me. So does the Spirit speak to us today? The answer is not through our hearts. What about through dreams and visions? Does the Spirit speak to us through dreams or visions? God sa- someone might say, God told me through a dream. Or God gave me a dream, a message fr- from a dream. I saw a vision. There are people out there who dream a lot, and they think that there's something spiritual about it. Maybe it's God talking to me. What does the Bible say about dreams and visions? Jeremiah chapter 29 Verses 8 through 9. Here the Bible says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are in your midst deceive you, nor listen to your dreams which you cause to be dreamed. For they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. People have dreams. And even at the time in Jeremiah's day, God did send messages through dreams. We see that happen over and over again. But not every dream was from God. And he says, I've not sent these dreams. They were trying to make every dream significant and have a spiritual message that they needed to do and implement. But the reality was, as we see in the part that's underlined, the dreams which you cause to be dreamed. Our dreams are influenced by the things that we have our mind on, aren't they? When I was in college, I used to dream about tests and projects and it annoyed me because it not only did I have to take the test but I had to take it twice because once in my dream and once in real life and the amount of stress that was involved with those dreams I was fixated my mind was on it I was worried about it am I going to pass the test am I going to do the best I can and I'd wake up really irritated because I felt like I was still exhausted because I'd just taken a test we dream about things that we have our mind on I don't have dreams about tests anymore, but now I have dreams about not getting all my work done on the farm because that's on my mind. And we have things that bother us or things that we're focused on, and sometimes we have dreams about spiritual things because we care about spiritual things. And we might dream about things that are about spiritual things. Is that God speaking to us? No, we cause those dreams ourselves. And that's what God told these men in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 8 through 9. We realize that God did speak to men in dreams in the times past, but we don't believe that he speaks to us in dreams today. I want to look at why we believe that. Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 18. This is the day of Pentecost. And Peter is preaching to those men on the day of Pentecost 
And he's quoting this prophecy found in Joel chapter 2 about the pouring out of the Spirit. And notice what he says. It shall come, pa- it shall come, it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters, they shall prophesy. They shall give a message from God. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So Peter says, God gave this message, or God gave Joel this prophecy that there would come a day where men would prophesy, they would have dreams, they would have visions, and a message from God. And that was, he was preaching about this on the day of Pentecost when the church was just about to be introduced. So we find that Christians, and we read all through Acts about the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, the things that people could do, the visions and the dreams, the miraculous knowledge and healing and all these incredible things. But what was the purpose of these gifts? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 12, give us a, a better understanding of what the gifts were for. So I want to look at this passage and I want to unpack the things that he talks about. He says, love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. So here he talks about the prophecies going away and that which is perfect is coming. What is this all talking about? Well, I want to look at those analogies that he talks about first in verses 11 and 12 to get a better understanding. He says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What does this have to do with these visions and dreams and miraculous things? He's talking about... The maturation of a man. A boy turning into a man. I thought, I spoke, and I did, and I understood as a, a child. But when I became a man, it was time for me to put those things away. What does this analogy have to do with this? It's talking about the maturation of the church. You see, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and those people decided to become Christians, and they wanted to follow God and serve God and do His will... How are they going to do it? The Bible hadn't been written yet. How are they going to follow the will of God without it? That's why God gave these miraculous gifts, this knowledge and this understanding, so that they would know how the church would function, how they could serve God and do His will. But when the time would come for the Bible to be finished, and every Christian had the opportunity to open up the Scriptures and read the Word of God and understand the will of God, he said, when that time has come... It's time to put away childish things. And so when the Bible was fully matured, the church could get rid of those gifts, and there was no need for them. And so the principle he talks about is the maturation of a man and the maturation of the church. What about verse 12? He says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just, just as I also am known. He's not talking like a mirror that we have in our bright bathrooms where we can see every perfection or imperfection that 
we want to see and make those changes. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about like looking in a glass or a window where you can dimly see your reflection, but not really closely. He says we see in a mirror dimly, but now, but then face to face. It's going to be like looking at ourselves face to face. What is he talking about there? He uses this analogy of seeing more clearly. Right now, we don't see very clearly, but there will come a time where we can see more clearly. And what's the principle he's trying to teach us? Right now, you have miraculous gifts of knowledge. God gave you a bit of knowledge, and this person has a bit of knowledge, and this person had a vision, and this person had a dream, and that's how God's revealed his will to us for the time being. But there will become a time where we can understand God's will more clearly, and that's found in Scripture. And that's the whole point that he's talking about. So, if any of you have ever had the same situation I've had, it's a really amazing thing. When I was young, I can't even remember how old I was, but I remember the first day I got my glasses. It was over here at Dr. Webb's office, and I remember when I got my glasses, and I looked out the window, there's this big tree on the other side, and I could see each individual leaf for the first time, and my mind was blown away. I didn't realize what I was missing out. I could see dim, and when I, when I had the opportunity to see really clearly, you couldn't give me a million bucks to take those glasses off. It was awesome. And the whole idea is, we have God's Word written down in this book, and we can understand it a lot more clearly than we could when we had these miraculous gifts. Why would you want to go back to that time when we have this more clearly seen vision or understanding from God? So that's the point he's making in these two analogies. Now let's go back and let's look at the things that he talks about in verse 8 and see how those analogies help us to understand. He says, Love never fails, but whether there are prophecies, those things are going to fall or fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. So the gifts of the Spirit are going to go away. And we have here on the left, left side of the screen, gifts of the Spirit. Continuing on in verse 9, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. The reality was at this particular time, they didn't know everything. They didn't understand everything. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. In verse 10, But when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. So he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And he's talking about how someday the Bible would come. And there would be a transition for the church to make. John 16, 13, the spirit of truth will guide you into all truth. They would have a better understanding. And so the church could put away the childish things, those gifts of the spirit. The church could see clearly, and so they don't want to look through that dim glass that they couldn't see. And so it would be time to put those things away and to put all the focus on the word of God. And today you and I have the same word. And if we want to know God's written or God's will for us, we open it, we study it. And we can understand a lot more clearly than the Christians could in the first century because we have everything that we need. So does the Spirit speak through our dreams or visions today? And the answer is no. We don't have to depend on dreams and visions to tell us what God's will is. The reality is, is God has sent His Spirit and the Spirit speaks to you and I through the Word of God. 
2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Spirit. When we open up our Bibles and we begin to read, we're not reading the words of men. We're reading words that the Holy Spirit inspired men to write. And this book is so unique because it comes from the Creator Himself. And if we want to be led by the Spirit and we want the Spirit to speak to us, all we have to do is open up the Word of God. Well, some might have a question. Yeah, there's a lot of things in the Bible, but what about choosing the proper career path? What about choosing a spouse or what I need to do today? Should I take a nap or what do I need to eat for lunch? Can we figure out what God's will is about those trivial things of life? There's a passage of Deuteronomy 29, 29 that helps explain this. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our, our God. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. There are things that God has not shared. And those things belong to Him. <clears throat> but Deuteronomy says, God's revealed the things to us so that we might do all the words of the law. So there's two different aspects of God's will that's discussed here in Deuteronomy 29. The unrevealed will and the revealed will of God. How does a Christian live according to the will of God in every aspect if we don't know what his will is? James chapter 4 verse 13 gives us a really good clue on how to do that. James chapter 4 verse 13. <clears throat> James is chastising these men because these men were planning their lives and they weren't even thinking about the will of God. They were just going to go about and do stuff, not even concerned about the will of God. And James says, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there. Buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So he's chastising them. He says, You forgot all about the most important guy in your life. God and what his will is and these people said we're going to go to that city we're going to make money and it's all going to be good we don't know what the will of God is and there's a little word that's at the beginning of this phrase if the Lord wills that word if means it's unknown and he tells us that we don't have to know the will of God in every little thing to move to this city or to be there or to choose that career path or whatever you want to ask. We don't know everything. It hadn't been revealed to us. And so, we don't have to know everything. And secondly, notice how he says, there's no, or notice how he never mentions the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, wait for a feeling to guide you in where to live or where to move. He doesn't say, wait on a dream or, or the Holy Spirit will guide you. He just says, go and do it. And then if the Lord wills, it'll happen. So James talks about the unrevealed will of God. We don't have to know it, and we don't have to wait for the Spirit to, to tell us every little decision that we might have. What about the revealed will of God? Jesus talks about it in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 24. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? They were so focused on these great wonders that, that they thought they were doing, they forgot something. 
In verse 23, Jesus tells them, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness means not abiding by the law. They had the will of God, and they were so focused on the things that they could do and the things that they had done, they neglected the most important part to Christ. And that was knowing the will of God and obeying it. And so Jesus tells them in verse 24, Whoever hears these things of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. This is a really important principle when it comes to how the Spirit speaks. So many people have decided, I'm going to build my life based off of dreams that I hear. It's not shaky, it's shaky ground. Or they try to follow, follow feelings, which go up and down, and emotions. And our hearts, passions, and desires go from this thing to that. And they try to build their life and their relationship with God on these things. And it's a very shaky ground. But Jesus tells us not to do that, but to build our house or build our lives on the foundation of the Word of God, to hear it and obey it. And in doing so, we're building our lives on a rock-solid foundation. And we don't have to worry about those things. So, when, when thinking about the unrevealed will of God and the revealed will of God, where does our focus need to be? It needs to be on the things that we do know, and not on the things that are over here on the, le on, the, on the left side of the screen. We need to focus less on what we don't know and focus more on what we do. We need to build our lives not on our hearts or feelings or our dreams, but build our lives on the foundation found in the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, Thoroughly equipped for every good work. He talks about the four different areas that Scripture is profitable for each person. For doctrine, that's just general truths and reality that come from God. We can learn so much from those. The Bible or the Scripture is profitable for reproof. Reproof means to stop doing something. And when we open up the Word of God, we find things that, that God wants us to stop doing. The Bible is profitable for correction. We all need to make corrections from those wrong ways of life and make a change to live properly and to serve God properly. The scripture gives us everything we need for that. And finally, instruction in righteousness. As we go down life's pathway and we strive to live properly, the scripture tells us everything we need to live properly, that the man of God may be complete. That word complete means lacking nothing. Everything that you and I need is found in scripture in order to please God, to serve God, and to be a good and profitable Christian. We don't need other books. We don't need feelings or dreams or visions or, or anything else. We can, all, we can find it in the Scripture. And that's why we emphasize following and obeying the Scripture so often from this pulpit. The Scripture gives us everything we need to be thoroughly equipped. This morning, I want to close the second, or not second, uh, the second chapter of Revelations and verse 7. Revelation 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We all have ears this morning, don't we? We all can listen to the Word of God and understand what it says. And the Bible says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. What's at the end of the road for the, for the Christian who is led by the Spirit, who walks by the Spirit? 
What's at the end of the road? The tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. When was the last time you thought about the road that you're walking down in this life? What's at the end of the road in the way you're currently living? Is there destruction? Is there pain? Is there heartache? What's at the end of the road for you? This morning, you can choose to, to allow yourself to be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, and to live a godly life. And you can know assuredly at the, at the end of your life, what's waiting for you is this paradise of God. But we have to choose to be led by the Spirit. We have to choose to walk in the Spirit and to listen to what He has told us found in the written Word of God and obey it. And notice what He talks about. He says, to him who overcomes. It's not easy. That's why we're here this morning because we need to be reminded that we're all in this together. We need to be reminded of these truths and to refocus our lives. It's not easy. But it's worth it because that tree of life is waiting for us. The paradise of God is waiting for us. So this morning, I want you to think about your heart. I don't know your heart. The people on the pews around you don't know your heart. God knows your heart and you know your heart. You know the destination of the road that you're walking down. Have you chosen to be led by God, to be led by the Spirit? Peter says in Acts chapter 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In order to get your life right with God, and to be a part of His family, and to start this walk down this road, turn away from your sinful life, cast off the flesh, be baptized, and in doing that, what will you receive? Your sins will be washed away, and you will receive the gift of that Spirit, that Spirit who leads and guides the Christian to this place. And so this morning, if you have not done that, God gives you an invitation to do that. And so if you haven't done that, we want to help you and assist you in doing that. Maybe you're a Christian, you began your walk down the road of life toward this paradise of God, and you veered off. And you decided to do things your own way, and you want to get right with God. He has a plan to help us with that. By repenting of those sins and confessing those sins to Him, we can get right with God and get back on track knowing that our destination is that paradise of God. So if you have a spiritual need this morning, we're going to sing an invitation song. And as we stand and sing this song, and you want the church to help you, you want to get your life right with God, let us know how we can help you by coming and sitting on one of these front pews, and one of the, one of the elders will help you in getting your life right with God. So come as we stand and sing the song that's been selected. <laughs>